Boston has a long history in professional sports, especially when it comes to baseball. It dates back to the very beginnings of pro leagues of any type. The hub was represented in that very first league in 1871, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, and the club won four of that circuit's five pennants. With that rich history come the facilities that the teams called home. Today, Fenway Park is likely the most famous and storied of American sports palaces. Now, keep in mind, Boston has had other baseball stadiums. The trivia buffs know about Braves Field and the Huntington Avenue grounds. And in some future podcast, we'll talk about all the local fields of dreams. But this time out, I'm going to tell you the story of one that nearly no one can recall. Lincoln Park had a very brief history, at least in Boston terms. It's seven years as a mere blip compared to the 12 decades we've had Fenway, or nearly 70 years for the Old Garden. Even today, parts of Braves Field live on almost 70 years after the team departed from Milwaukee on its way to Atlanta. Despite its early death, Lincoln Park is worth noting because it's also history. Boston's history of black baseball is not exactly stellar. The Red Sox were the very last team to integrate as Elijah Pumsey Green took the field a full 12 years after Jackie Robinson as a pinch runner. In fairness, the Crosstown Braves were ahead of them, signing center fielder Sam Jethro in 1950. Before the late 1940s, blacks were not allowed to play in either the American or National League due to the ironically named Gentleman's Agreement. It banned a sizable portion of the population from playing the national pastime. Some of the best players ever to step up to the plate or throw from the mound were denied that chance to do so for no other reason than the color of their skin. Although the agreement was never put in writing and its existence was even denied by those in power, it was strictly enforced. No one, one can only guess what early baseball would have been like with such stars as Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard, Monty Irvin, and cool Papa Bell playing in their prime. This, of course, is not news. Many stories have been told of Jackie Robinson's bravery and Branch Rickey's statesmanship, changing the course of sports history. Those men did not erase the evils of the past, but their actions ensured future generations of baseball players would no longer endure the indignity of automatic exclusion. With the gates of the American and National Leagues closed to those of African-American descent, there existed a separate set of major baseball circuits known collectively at the time as the Negro Leagues. Although teams were established in many major U.S. cities, Boston never hosted one. Strangely enough, though, Boston was also one of the very few major cities with a so-called black baseball park. Built as a private business, hoping to make a profit, it was also constructed out of feelings of hope and maybe wishful thinking. Before we seek out this mystery stadium called Lincoln Park, let's talk a little bit about black baseball in general 
and the strange journey I took in finding the location of this long-lost park. The earliest organized black league was the National Colored Baseball League. It was formed as a minor league circuit built to feed the two established majors of that time, the National League and the American Association. We actually had a local team called the Boston Resolutes. While trying to negotiate for a home field, they opened on the road in Louisville. During that first series, league officials got word that neither the Nationals nor the Americans had any intention of hiring black players. With that news, investment collapsed and the Colored League disappeared overnight. The members of the Resolutes, still on the road, all took jobs at local Kentucky restaurants as waiters just to earn train fare back to New England. The first attempt at a black major league came in 1920 by noted promoter Rube Foster, the Negro National League. A second National League formed on the death of the first and continued operation until 1949. Other leagues, such as the American Negro League, Eastern Colored League, and East-West League sprang up as well. If you're a baseball fan, you've probably heard of the more famous clubs. The Homestead Grays, Pittsburgh Crawfords, Kansas City Monarchs, Brooklyn Elite Giants. At the time, they built reputations as large as any of the teams in the all-white majors. The All-Star Games were played at Chicago's Comiskey Park, and the stands were filled by people from all parts of that city. Boston played only a peripheral role in the formation and continuation of the various black leagues, but not for lack of trying. For 50 years, attempts were made by locals to create a true team for the area to support. Instead, the city saw a parade of clubs form, disappear, and sometimes reappear, but never quite capturing the entire city's imagination. You can come up with all sorts of theories as to the lack of success. There was competition from the Braves and Red Sox. There was a high degree of racism, and the talent was spread thin among the several local organizations trying to make the breakthrough to the big time. No one club ever seemed to break away from the pack. Let's go back in Boston's history a little. In 1903, the first of two teams to be called the Boston Royal Giants came to life, joining the existing Greater Boston League. The club's rivals were the Medford Independents, Cambridge, Washingtons, Malden, Riversides, West Newton, and Alston. The Royal Giants existed off and on for a half century. Sometime before the First World War, the Royal Giants were supplanted as local favorites by the Boston Tigers, managed by Bob Russell. He was involved with the black baseball community. He promoted games with many of the big teams from around the country when they came here to play. In the 1920s, the Tigers were taken over by another promoter, Arthur A. Johnson, who ran the team until 1935. In the 1920s, a local team called the Philadelphia Colored Giants came into existence. It wasn't from Pennsylvania, but many of its players were. To avoid some confusion, the name was shortened to Philly Giants. These early teams did not have homes to call their own. Some played at Dorchester Town Field, today called Doherty Field, while Carter Field on Columbus Avenue was the more popular location. Carter Field, sitting next to Northeastern University's parking garage, still exists today as well. Approximately 1930, a piece of land on Mass Ave, formerly occupied by a Boston consolidated gas tank, was turned into a private baseball diamond. 
Unlike the fields in Dorchester or on Columbus Avenue, the newly christened Lincoln Park, named for Abraham Lincoln, was enclosed and contained a ticket booth and locker rooms. It held seating for 6,000 fans. The bulk of the wooden bleachers ran parallel to the third base line along Gerard Street in Roxbury. The first base stand attached to the third base seats behind home plate and ran perpendicular to them along Chesterton Street. A separate set of bleachers also ran parallel to Chesterton farther out in the outfield. The locker room sat just outside the grandstand at the edge of the fence near the corner of Chesterton and Gerard Streets. The small stadium took up most of the block surrounded by Gerard, Chesterton and Island Streets and Mass Ave near its junction with Southampton Street. It may not have been as large or as renowned as its local counterparts, Fenway Park or Braves Field, but it was a welcome home for many teams for the next seven years. They no longer had to deal with city officials for use of public spaces. Their survival no longer depended on passing the hat. The stadium offered them the chance to truly charge admission, and it gave them an air of professionalism. First to move in were the Boston Tigers. Not to be outdone, the Philly Giants were next. In 1931, due to the efforts of Arthur Daddy Black, the Providence Colored Giants were born. Although the team was officially based in Rhode Island, Black believed in full professionalism for his team. Lincoln Park offered him the chance to do that, so it became the club's home away from home. He was the first local promoter to offer his players a salary, ranging from $40 to $60 a week. The team lasted only until April 1933. He was severely criticized by the newspapers for what they considered poor business practices. The Boston Chronicle said that the team's failure can be traced primarily to the prima donnas carried by the team. Also, the owner made the mistake of paying these hired help weekly salaries. A larger problem, however, was that Arthur Black was murdered in a holdup of his Cranston Street office. The Providence Giants did not survive his death. The 1930s, though, represented a golden era for black baseball in Boston. Although no one team managed to dominate or even offer continuity, there were always clubs to fill in the gaps that inevitably occurred. To be considered the community's prime club, a team had to make Lincoln Park its home. As the Boston Chronicle noted, any team making Lincoln Park its home automatically becomes the big shot hereabouts. Although the park was nowhere near comparable in size, newspapers often, on several occasions, made references to Lincoln Park in the same light as Fenway or Braves Field. In 1932, the Boston Tigers of the New England League were still the main attraction at the stadium and were often called the Lincoln Park Nine. Also still playing at the Southampton ground, as the Chronicle often called the park, were the Philly Giants. A third team called the Boston Colored Giants, managed by former Negro League star Oliver Marcel, joined them. An old-timers game traditionally played at Carter Playground was moved to Lincoln Park in 1933. Admission for most games was 15 cents. Promoter Billy Leonard brought excitement to the park in 1933. He arranged for the Brooklyn Cuban Giants to travel north to play the local Philly Giants. On two separate days, a week apart, the team squared off three times with wide-ranging weather and results. Several thousand spectators crammed in, first to a chilly rain, 
and later to Torrid Sun. In the first matchup, Brooklyn beat up on the locals 16-1. to In the doubleheader the following week, another overflowing crowd witnessed the Boston club turn it around with an 18-2 romp in the opener and a nail-biting 11-9 win in the second. The Chronicle said it was a slugfest that exceeds all past baseball exhibitions ever staged at the Southampton Street bandbox. Babe Ruth promised to throw out the ceremonial first pitch at Lincoln Park in June 1934, but his own game at Fenway Park that afternoon went into extra innings, and he never got there. That year, several more local clubs emerged as tenants, the Pullman Porters, the the Colored House of David, and a new version of the Royal Giants. In 1935, Clem Mack leased the park for his new team, the Boston ABCs, who became the prime tenants. In the off-season, a new pavilion was built as part of the refurbishing of the stadium. Mack added to his revenue stream by subleasing to other organizations. Parts of the state soccer tournament were held there, and it became home for a short time to a semi-professional football team. He also welcomed back the other black baseball clubs, the Philly Giants and the Tigers and the Royal Giants. The scene was confusing, and the teams seemed to be in a death struggle with each other. In 1936... Arthur Johnson of the Tigers called for a meeting of all of the Boston black teams to bring some order to the local scene. According to the Boston Chronicle, the meeting produced no tangible results. Berlin White of the Royal Giants called for a grand baseball fest for that May, but it never happened. As the dust settled, only the Philly Giants and the Royal Giants appear to have survived the year. But Lincoln Park central to Boston black baseball, apparently did not. There never seems to be another game played there. The surviving teams moved back to the public parks, and the big games were played elsewhere. For instance, the Homestead Grays came to town to play the Fraser All-Stars under the lights at Fraser Field in Lynn. Fenway played host to the Philadelphia Stars and the New York Cuban Giants. But Lincoln Park was gone. For a decade, the park's brief history was lost. It doesn't seem to have been recorded anywhere. I discovered it in a very roundabout and drawn-out way. In 1975, I was working at nearby Atkinson Street. This was 40 years after the last time the park is mentioned in the newspapers. My uncle, Sam Foles, was a noted sports historian, chiefly local soccer history, but he had an interest in all sports. When he heard where I was working, he said... You're right near the old Lincoln Park. He went on to tell me how he, as secretary of the Northern Massachusetts and New Hampshire Soccer Association, had rented the facility for state state cup finals. Intrigued, I asked him exactly where it was. He said, next to the big round gas building, but he didn't remember which side. At lunchtime breaks from my job, I wandered the area to find any remnants with no luck. The big round building still existed, but nothing else. Skip forward to 2004. I was doing research for a book I wrote called Boston's Ballparks and Arenas. It covered all of Boston's professional sports venues. This memory that my uncle had planted in my brain haunted me. I needed to include Lincoln Park in the book, but there seemed to be precious little information on it. The major dailies rarely, if ever, mentioned it, and if they did, it was only in passing. 
The Boston Chronicle, which catered to the black community, did talk about it often, but assumed its 1930s readers already knew where it was. It never said exactly where to find it, other than references to nearby Southampton Street. Armed with just two clues, the big round building and a street name, I became obsessed with finding it. I took several trips with family members to my old work stomping grounds and even talked with neighbors. No one had ever heard of the stadium and were surprised to find out that it existed at all. One 80-year-old owner of a local factory told me that his family business was in the area in the 30s, and as a young boy, he roamed the neighborhood, but he had no recollection of the park. Before I discovered microfiche of the Chronicle, I scouted the main daily papers of the area. I was beginning to doubt the park's existence. Then one night, everything changed. In the catacombs of the Boston Public Library, I stumbled upon an old Sanborn insurance map collection of the area. I narrowed my search down to the suspected neighborhood and a version of a map drawn in the early 1930s. There it was, in black and white, Lincoln Park. The map showed not only the name Lincoln Park, but it depicted exactly where the grandstands and the locker room were located. Right next door was, and is, a large round building. A gas company office back then, and a hotel today. My uncle was exactly right. A nearly forgotten piece of Boston's past was brought back to light. It is a mystery no more. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archive.